Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And this morning we're going to read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. 14 to 27. Verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. And oftentimes he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for truly I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Does not your master pay tribute? And he said, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Jesus said, Then the children are free. Nevertheless, lest we should offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take up the fish that first comes up, and when you have opened his mouth, you shall find a place of money, a piece of money that take, give to them for me and for you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this amazing passage this morning, Lord, we are grateful for your Son and the words of your Son that, Lord, give us light in a dark world. And we, I ask, Lord, that this morning you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit and you'd give us ears to hear. You'd give us an understanding, Lord, for as we try to understand your ways, we are aware that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we acknowledge our great need of your, of your help in understanding. So Lord, we thank you for your word. Open it to us this morning. See, help us to see we're hearing from you and not from man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most famous Renaissance artists is the artist Raphael. 
Uh, you might be familiar with the Renaissance artists from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? <laughs> but uh, among the most famous was Raphael. And Raphael actually died young. Raphael died at the age of 37. And Raphael's last painting, which is also considered to be his most famous painting, is the painting of the transfiguration of Jesus. So in, at the age of 37, he actually died before he was able e even to finish the painting. He couldn't even finish the painting because of death. And Raphael's painting of the transfiguration is divided in half. So I want you to try to imagine it with me. I wish I had a, a picture of it. But his painting is divided in half. And on top, the top half of the painting is Jesus transfigured. And Jesus is with the white robes, with the right robe that he has on, and he's shining in light. And there's Moses and there's Elijah with him, and the, and the three disciples are not looking. But there's Jesus in his transfigured beauty upon the mount. And everything in that, in that top half is very orderly and full of light and heavenly glory. And in the bottom half of Raphael's painting is this scene that we read now of the demoniac boy. And the bottom half of his painting is dark, confusing. There's a lot of chaos as the disciples are trying to cast this demon out of this boy and the boy's having an, a, a demonic fit and the father is holding, trying to hold the son up and the mother's praying. And it's all chaos and confusion in this picture, the two different halves. And Raphael paints here a, a contrast between heaven and earth. The contrast between the beauty and order of heaven and God and the struggling, sorrowful, dark world of men full of confusion and pain. There it is. <laughs> if you want to see it on the laptop. <laughs> Maybe you could pass it around or something. <laughs> the contrast he paints is between the beauty and order of, of Christ and God and the struggling and sorrowful world. And one of the disciples in Raphael's picture is pointing to Jesus, basically saying, we need him to come and help. You see, brothers and sisters, I think Raphael captures a truth here that without God and without Jesus, this earth has no help. And this earth is left in pain and suffering, and on its own, we can't solve our own problems. Earth's only hope is from heaven. But the beautiful thing also is that Christ Jesus, the heavenly man, who all he knew was heavenly glory, order and peace and joy and the love of his Father. And you have this ugly scene below. Christ Jesus walked among us. He came to this world and lived among that sorrow, walked among that darkness with healing and love in his wings. And it shows us the beauty of God, that even though there's such a great difference, he loves us and he came into this world to help us and to save us. As one commentator put it, surely this is the picture of a true king or what a king should be like. A king that sees his subjects in need and comes and leaves his throne to save them. And this is what we find in Jesus, the king of kings.
Now in verse 14 and 16, we find this scene of the demoniac, a man and a company in great need. Now the Bible says that the son was a lunatic, right? <laughs> now do you know what lunatic means? The word lunatic, it actually means moonstruck. The word lunatic actually means moonstruck. It comes from the Latin word lunatic, okay? And uh, the Greek word is seleniadzomai, which is, comes from the Greek word for moon, selene. And it was actually a belief of the ancient Greeks that people who were crazy were actually moonstruck, that, that the phases of the moon actually affected people's minds. And the belief was because men was mostly made of water, and they figured that the brain was mostly made of water, and they knew that the moon affected the water and the tides. They figured that people who had a messed up constitution, when the moon was full, that they went crazy because the tides messed up their ability to be reasonable. <laughs> yeah. So this is what a lunatic means. Now, the Jews didn't believe that, but that's the word that is used here in Matthew's gospel. He was a lunatic. What we actually see, though, is that he was, demon, he was demonia, uh, demonized. The boy was severely demonized. And Matthew only gives us the bare bones of the story, but Mark goes into great detail. And this morning, I want to sort of draw from Mark's account because Mark's account is so much more insightful. Matthew gives us just the bare bones because he wants us just to see the contrast between the impotence of the disciple and the power of Jesus. But I want you to see Mark's details. The boy was severely demonized. He was deaf and he was dumb. It means he couldn't hear anything and he couldn't say anything. But on top of that, the boy would be violently seized by demons often. And the demon would throw him onto the ground in convulsions and wear him out, Matthew says, or Mark says, excuse me, would throw him on the ground violently and literally wear his body out. And probably after one of these attacks, the boy would have been bruised and cut and tired and his bones would probably be... Actually, the words that Mark uses in the Greek are words like shattered, crushed. It's hard to even imagine how severely demonized this boy was. And he would fall into the fire and into the water. The, in, in Mark, the, the father is telling Jesus about this and saying that the demon would attack him and throw him on the ground and crush him and wear him out and try to throw him in the water to drown him or in the fire to burn him. And Jesus asks the father, how long has the boy been like this? And the answer is, since he was a baby. So, brothers and sisters, this is a severe case of demonization. A tremendously bad case. And when Jesus comes, uh, he learns that the disciples had been trying to cast out this demon. But they failed. And in Mark's gospel, uh, Mark chapter 9. Yes. And in Mark's gospel, um, the scribes are there, Jesus, uh, Mark tells us, that the scribes are there arguing with the disciples about this very case. And the father's saying, they, when Jesus comes, the father says, he, they're not able to cast him out, and the scribes are there arguing with them and questioning with them and, and presumably ridiculing them. Can't do it, huh? 
Can't cast him out. Ah, see, I knew you, were, you guys were weak and not really of God. <laughs> right? I knew that your master was a phony. The scribes didn't believe Jesus when miracles did happen, and they didn't believe Jesus when miracles didn't happen. Right? And the reason was is because they didn't want to believe Jesus at all. They didn't like Christ. They didn't like his disciples. They were finding fault. And why did they hate Christ? Because Not because Jesus healed people. The, the, the Pharisees and the scribes didn't hate Jesus because he healed people. He didn't hate Jesus because he taught that we should be nice to our neighbor. They hated Jesus because Jesus preached perfect righteousness. And Jesus exposed the Pharisees and the scribes as being unrighteous and as not teaching the people the truth of the law. He, he taught the people, you, you don't, don't think that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is enough. In fact, everything that they do is just perverted because they just do it to be seen by men. So the Pharisees and the scribes hated Jesus because as the light of the world, he came in and spoke truth. He came in and exposed them as hypocrites. And so they fault find. They can't be pleased when he does a miracle, and they can't be pleased when he doesn't do a miracle. Everything to them is fault. And this is the situation that Jesus comes to off of the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes to this crowd. A suffering father with a suffering son. Disciples who are being embarrassed in front of the crowd because they can't cast this demon out and a ridiculing leadership of scribes and Pharisees. And in verse 17, Jesus laments. When Jesus sees the situation, he says this, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Now I don't believe that Jesus is speaking this to his disciples. And that's what often we think is that Jesus comes here and he says, oh, my disciples, you're a bunch of faithless, perverse, you're a seed of faithless and perverse people, right? Why did you not cast this out? Look at all the ridicule we're being exposed to now because you're failing here. Look at the disgrace you're bringing on the ministry because you're not doing this miracle, okay? Now, Jesus did miracles and they still didn't like him. So I don't think he was saying, oh, my disciples, I don't believe he was speaking to the disciples at all in verse 17, but rather that he was speaking to the scribes and to those who followed them. Jesus never addressed his disciples like this. He would say to them, oh, you of little faith, or he'd say to them, are you dull of hearing? But he'd never call them a perverse generation, unbelieving with no faith. He was saying this to the scribes because they were perverse and because the scribes didn't believe in Jesus and the people that followed the scribes, they didn't believe in Jesus. He often described them this way, didn't he? There's many places we can point to where Jesus says, you're a wicked and corrupt generation. And why? Because you don't love the truth. You don't listen to me. You hate me because I, I am the light of the world, because I share with you what is true. You fault find. And so Jesus is saying, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, those who are perverse, those who don't believe in him. Remember that the disciples do believe. They had just declared he was the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, 
bring him to me, and we'll put a stop to the scribes arguing and help this poor father and his son. And in Mark, what we see is something very shocking, and it gives us an insight into this case. Because when Jesus says, bring the boy to me, and when they begin to bring the boy to Jesus, he right then and there begins to have a demonic fit. As the demon knows that now he's coming to Christ. And now his time is over. The demon is not going to go down without a fight. And as they're bringing this demoniac boy to Jesus, the demon hurls him down and he has one of the worst fits that he has ever had. And when Jesus rebukes the demon and says, leave him and never come back, do you think the demon goes out easily? The demon doesn't go out easily. The demon goes out so violently that everyone concludes the boy's dead. He's frothing at the mouth. He's hitting his head against the ground. He's, his body is going through uh, extreme pain and affliction. And when it's all over, the boy's basically laying there and everyone concludes, he's dead. You killed him, Jesus. Might have been better just to leave the demon in there. At least he would have been alive. But Jesus reaches down and the scripture says he picks up him gently with his hand and lifts him up. And he says, he's not dead. And he restored him to his father. What we're to see here, though, is how difficult this situation was. This was no normal case of demon possession. This was an extremely severe case where this demon was doing everything in his power not to leave this boy. And even at the command of Jesus, he made a big scene and tried to kill the boy. But Jesus restores him to perfect health. When God commands, brothers and sisters, nature and demons must obey. Jesus commanded and that demon had no other choice but to leave. We see Jesus command demons, and they listen. We see Jesus command the seas and the wind, and they listen, because Jesus is the Son of God. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 43, what Luke tells us is this about the crowd. They were all amazed at the mighty power of God. That's what Luke tells us. And that's a very important thing that he notes. Because this is what is going on here. You've got an extremely difficult case. And when it's solved, everyone is saying, wow, look at the awesome power of God Almighty. So we kind of can see the scene a little bit better. And the scribes probably leave in a huff. Now in verse 19, after Jesus heals this boy... The disciples come to him privately and they ask him why they couldn't cast him out. Why could we not cast him out? Why, Jesus? It had worked before, right? The, the disciples had already been on their Galilee mission. Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons. And they had actually had much success. You remember in one of the Gospels, they come back from the mission. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us, right? So the disciples are genuinely baffled here. How come it didn't work? <laughs> They're confused. 
And brothers and sisters, Christ's answer to them is not harsh at all. I hope you haven't thought it was harsh. It's understanding and it's with understanding and it's also simple. And in verse 20, 20, Jesus tells them why they couldn't cast out the demon. And he says, because of your oligopistion. Make sense? <clears throat> you see, the word pistos in the, Greek, in the Greek is faith. And unfortunately, in many of our translations, I think some of the modern ones have, have fixed this problem. In the King James, it says, because of your unbelief. Because you didn't have faith. But the Greek word there would be apistion, meaning no faith. But here he says oligo, pistion, and oligo means little faith. You didn't have enough faith. You had little faith. Not a complete lack of faith. The disciples were not totally faithless. They had some faith, right? That's why they were confused. And it was because they had little faith um, that they were confused. They said, why couldn't we cast it out? It had worked before. But this raises an interesting question because if Jesus says the reason why you couldn't cast out this demon is because you had little faith, how does that make any sense with what he goes on to tell them about the the faith the size of a mustard seed? (laughs) Right? He said you couldn't cast him out because you had too little faith. And I tell you, if you even had a little faith, then you would be able to move mountains. (laughs) there's really something interesting going on here. And I think we miss it if we don't think about this more carefully. Yes, brothers and sisters, the disciples had faith a little bit. And yet, they couldn't cast it out. They had too little of faith. Jesus means this. Well, when he speaks of the grain of mustard seed and the mountain, these are Hebrew Uh, these are Hebraisms. A mustard seed simply is just a tiny, what he means there is, if you had a tiny little bit of faith, then you'd be able to accomplish impossible things. It's uh, not literally talking about moving mountains here. But he's saying if you just had a little faith, you'd be able to do the most impossible things. And nothing would be impossible for you. And so, therefore, what does Jesus mean when he says it was because you had little faith? The, the meaning is this, brothers and sisters. The scope of their faith was too small. Not the size of their faith in this particular situation. He wasn't saying, you know, you had faith in this situation, it just wasn't big enough. The problem was is that the disciples did not have faith in this particular situation. This kind of demon, they didn't have the faith to cast him out. They had too little faith. The scope of it was too small. They believed God could do certain things, but they didn't really believe God could have actually done this particular thing. Or they doubted. It was a lack of faith in this situation. When Jesus says it takes only the tiniest bit of faith to change the most impossible situations, this is not because... Clearly, faith is what changes the situations, but because God is the one who has the power to change situations. All you need is a little faith in God. Jesus is actually referring to a scripture in the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, where it even talks about mountains being removed 
in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. God says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. So, God is powerful to move mountains. God is powerful to do what is humanly impossible. But the question is, do you believe? Because it's not by your might, it's not by your power, but by the power of God. And it just takes, Jesus said, a little bit of faith. So the question to ask yourself is, do you have faith in God that he can do the impossible? Do you have faith for different situations, brothers and sisters? You see, Jesus says, nothing shall be impossible, but I think sometimes we think some things shall be possible, but other things shall be impossible, right? We, kinda, we do have faith in God. It's not that we have no faith, but our faith only goes so far. It's too small in its scope. Nothing shall be impossible with God. Now, does that mean that Jesus is saying if we had faith and we could have some sort of a Star Wars scenario where if I wanted to, I could move objects with my faith, right? You know, in Star Wars, the Force, and he can just believe something can move and it will be thrown across the room. Can I just believe for anything? What if I believed I wanted someone to die because I didn't like them? Could I kill them? The Bible says some things are impossible with God. Right? Is it true? The Bible says that there are things that are impossible with God. Uh, God cannot lie. Right? God cannot deny himself. It's impossible for him to deny himself. So if you had a little bit of faith that God could deny himself, it would not happen. So when the Bible says that nothing is impossible with God, we're to understand that in a context. Nothing is impossible with God in the context of his nature and in his plan and in his will. Nothing is impossible with God. So we're not to think, I can now just believe for anything and it will happen. But within consistency with God's nature, if I have a little bit of faith, there's nothing impossible with God. So we shouldn't think that because I don't have faith for some things, therefore I don't have any faith at all. Nor should we think because I have faith for some things, therefore I don't have, therefore I have faith for all things. You might be able to trust God for providing for your financial needs, and yet you might not trust God for providing for your relational needs, Right? You might have faith and trust God for the saving of your soul, but you might not have faith to trust God for the healing of your body. Or you might have faith to trust God for the healing of your body, but you don't have faith to trust God for the casting out of a demon like this severely demonized boy. Jesus is encouraging us to believe and to believe God for all things, because God is powerful. And brothers and sisters, we just need to trust him more. 
We should believe God for big things. Do you believe that? I mean, do you relate to the disciples a bit? And think, well, yeah, I mean, I have little faith. The scope of my faith is kind of narrow and small. But God wants you to believe him for all things. And not be deterred by any mountain. Now in verse 21, Jesus says something else. Now the best conservative scholarship that we have actually shows us that, that this is uh, only found in Mark and that Matthew didn't actually write this in his gospel, but that uh, scribes who uh, were copying Matthew put this in for clarity because Jesus did say this. He did say it in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. Jesus says, this kind of demon can only go out by prayer. And so they add it here for clarity. So Jesus did say this, and we're going to look at it. But that same conservative scholarship also shows us that Jesus didn't originally say by fasting and prayer. He only said by prayer. So what we're to see here is when Jesus says, after he says, it was because of your too little faith, you didn't have a big enough faith. If you only had a grain of mustard seed for this situation, God can move mountains. Nothing is impossible with him. But this kind can only come out by prayer. In Mark, Jesus doesn't at all talk about their lack of faith. And in Matthew, Jesus doesn't actually talk about prayer. If you take them both together, then this is basically what Jesus is saying. You didn't have faith to cast out the demon because this kind is so exceptionally difficult that only through prayer can faith arise in your heart. This is a difficult case. This is the kind of case that when you look at it with human eyes, you tremble. You think, this is impossible. This is not going to happen. Well, I know that we cast out demons before, but this is a different kind. So we'll go for it. We'll try, but I don't really think it's going to work. Or they entertain the doubt. This kind is so difficult that only through prayer can faith arise in your heart. A.B. Bruce writes this, There was no hope of success except through a believing appeal to the almighty power of God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. They look at the situation and say, okay, this is impossible, and I don't really have faith for this. I need to pray. And perhaps you can relate to this. You and I often have faith for some miraculous things, right? But other things, we seem, it seems too difficult even for the miraculous. The former things, we don't even feel like we need to pray about them, right? There are some miraculous things that we don't even pray about. We just trust God for them. Yeah, it's humanly impossible, but I know God is with me and God is great and I'm just trusting him. And you don't even feel like you need to pray at all. But it's the, it's the latter things, the miraculous things that seem too difficult. This is when we need to pray. It's because we struggle with them and faith. We, it's because we struggle to believe God in those situations that we must pray. Why do we pray? The Bible tells us when we're anxious, when we're worried. Right? In Philippians chapter 4, 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. If you're worried about something, if you're doubtful, if you don't think God can handle it, what are you supposed to do? Pray. When you lack faith, pray. Talk to God. Present your supplications before Him. And remember that He is the Almighty God who can do all things. So brothers and sisters, perhaps this is encouragement for us to pray to God for bigger things and not be content with little faith, just believing for some things and not for all things. Can you relate to that at all? No? <laughs> Can you relate to the disciples where you may have, you, you go on a Galilean mission and you see all these miraculous things and you have faith for it and you don't even think about praying because you just believe. I don't need to pray about this. I know God can cast out the demon. But then you come to a situation like this one, which is very severe, and even Jesus, after commanding the demon, put up a big fight. And the disciples needed to pray. I can relate to that. Verse 22 and 23. As we move on, we, we see once again the subject which is most pressing on Jesus' mind, and that is his death. And here again he announces his death to his disciples. The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. Here he gives us a new feature in what's going to happen. He says he'll be delivered or betrayed. Now this can mean betrayed by Judas. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. If this means Judas, certainly already Judas has been defecting from Jesus. His betrayal is not far away now. And it was probable that the announcement of Jesus' death didn't just bother Peter. Peter couldn't endure the thought of Christ dying. He said, not so, Lord, it shall not be. Peter figured this couldn't be from God. This has to be from the devil. And of course, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, no, what you're thinking is not from God. What you're thinking is from the devil. So perhaps Judas, I'm speculating, like Peter, lost faith in Jesus at that point because he tripped up or stumbled at this idea that Jesus must die. That's just a speculation. The other way it could be taken is that God is going to deliver Jesus into the hands of men. That would equally be true. Because it is true that Jesus wasn't delivered to men randomly. Jesus wasn't handed over to men as an accident. Jesus wasn't betrayed by Judas and he said, oh no, you're ruining everything. God sent Jesus into the world and God gave up his son to death on the cross. And Jesus says it was because God loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's amazing to think of God delivering his son into the hands of men. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in the 1700s called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that sermon, he talks about sinful men being crushed and punished by the wrath of God because of their sins and God's anger towards men. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because men deserve death and God gives wrath, 
Therefore, we ought to tremble before God. But here, it's an interesting inversion. God in the hands of angry sinners. And why are they angry? Why are the sinners angry so that when they get Jesus in their hands and when they get Jesus in their clutches, they're angry and they tear him apart? And they want him to be killed and they shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because they hate Jesus. He was a hated man. Why? Because he preached the truth. Because Jesus preached the truth and preached righteousness and preached that none were righteous, not even one, they hated Jesus. And when they got him in their hands, they tore him apart. And the mystery of it all, brothers and sisters, is that God in the hands of angry sinners is actually for our salvation. That Jesus was crucified by sinners who hated him so that he would be a sacrifice for their sins. The ones who hated God, Jesus was actually loving by allowing them to rip him to shreds. The ones who drove the nails into his hands and the ones who cried out, crucify him, and the ones who slapped him in the face and the ones who handed him over to Pilate, all the sinners that were involved in his crucifixion, he was actually dying for the ones who hated him. And that is an amazing vision of his love. That just shows you that God's love is so different than our love. None of us would be like that. None of us would die for those who hate us, die for those who kill us. Not just mock us, but kill us. And that's the mystery of the cross, that the, the ugliest thing in the world, the cross of Jesus, is also at the same time the most beautiful thing in the whole world. Some people can only see the ugliness of it. Christians see the beauty of the cross in the midst of that ugliness. In fact, because of that ugliness, it is beautiful. And so Jesus is not here lamenting his death as a gloomy martyr for seeing what's about to happen to him. He sees here the resurrection. Jesus always saw the resurrection when he thought about his death. The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. They shall kill him. And the third day he will be raised from the dead. When Jesus thought about his death, he also saw his resurrection. His death had a great meaning because he was dying for the sins of the whole world and he's glad. And lastly, verse 24, we'll look at this final scene because here they come home to Capernaum. Jesus spent much of his time in Capernaum. That was... Uh, his, his new home after he left Nazareth and began his ministry. And he comes home, and the first thing that they meet here, according to the text, is tax uh, pressing needs. You need to pay your taxes. And A.B. Bruce, Bruce points out, from the Mount of Transfiguration to money demands, which one is too poor to meet, what a descent. The experience has often been repeated in the lives of saints, the sons of God, and men of genius. That you go from the heights of the transfiguration where you're thinking about God and you're just amazed at what God is doing and the reality of the glory of heaven. And you come back home and taxes time and you got to worry about your taxes and your money. Do you ever relate to that? Where in one hand you just are amazed at God and then the next moment you have to worry about the mundane. 
the time of the collecting of taxes was in the Jewish month of Adar, the 15th, which would be early March, which means that this is about one month from Jesus' crucifixion. And the tax is based upon Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 to 16, where Moses was told that every Israelite above the age of 20 was to pay a half shekel for the service of the temple to make atonement for their souls. The temple, it's not the payment of the money that makes atonement for your souls. It's the temple that makes atonement for your souls. But the giving of the money to support the temple is you contributing to the atonement of your souls. The question that the tax collector asks, asks Jesus or asks Peter is, does your master pay it? So the question is not, does the disciples, do the disciples pay? But what about your master? Did Jesus need to pay this tax? Peter quickly answers yes. Naively. And when he comes into the house, Jesus catches him when he comes in and talks to him and teaches him. And there's certainly no need, brothers and sisters, for Jesus to pay a tax to the temple for the atonement of his soul because Jesus is sinless, right? Jesus is not needing atonement for his soul. There is no one who would. He is himself the atonement for our souls. He is himself the substance of the temple. There is no one else. But while that's true, that's not what Jesus gets at here. There's more to it than that. And Jesus asked Peter a common question that should be easy to answer. What do you think, Simon? When kings take custom or tribute or tax, who do they tax? Do they tax their children or do they tax strangers? And Peter says they tax strangers, obviously. The question's not a trick question. It's just a no-brainer, common knowledge. Kings don't tax their kids. The children are free from obligation. And that's what Jesus says when he says the children are free. It means from obligation. When the Bible talks about freedom, it means from obligation. David Brown, the commentator, puts it this way, as if Jesus was saying, this is a tax for upholding my father's house. And as his son, then, that tax is not due by me. I am free. And here, brothers and sisters, though it is implicit, we have one of the clearest statements of Jesus' divine sonship. Jesus is literally saying, uh, this tax that God says that people need to give, I'm exempt because I'm his son. I don't have to do it. So he's not meaning... I'm his son in the sense that we, uh, that people often say we're the children of God. Jesus' sonship is special. But he tells them they wouldn't understand. Because if I said, no, I don't need to pay the tax because I'm the son of God, they wouldn't have understood and they would have tripped up and been offended. And so Jesus says, so that we don't offend them, here's what you need to do. You see, it, wasn't a, it was a matter of the law, not of tradition. Jesus was never tolerant of erroneous traditions. He didn't wash his hands when the uh, elders said he should. He didn't stop healing on the Sabbath, even though that made people angry. 
But this was a matter of the law. And though Jesus was exempt from the law, he still submitted himself to it so that others would not be offended. And I think this is a lesson for us as well. But you'll see the miraculous provision. Jesus here performs a miracle. Go to the sea, throw in your hook. The first fish you catch will have enough money in it to pay for you and for me. And here we see again the greatness of Jesus. We see that Jesus was no mere man, but God himself. But the important point of this passage is not the miraculous, because Matthew doesn't even tell us that Peter did it. We assume that he did. But the important point is Jesus' position as the son and the lesson that's involved. He was under no obligation to pay. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that when you put your faith in Christ and when he died for your sins and died in your place, he died for you so that you, as the Apostle Paul said, become freed from the law. And you become a child of God and like Jesus, are under no obligation in any way to the law of God. Now that's a radical thought. And probably a lot of people would think that's heretical for me to say that. But when you become a Christian, you also don't have to obey the law. If you did, then you'd perish because none of us do obey the law. We're free. This is what Paul means when he says, stand fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made you free. What freedom is he talking about? Well, in Galatians, he's talking about your freedom from the obligation to obey the law. Many Christians think, well, I'm forgiven, but I still have to obey. Well, if you have to obey, you're in trouble. Is it good to obey? Yes. Is it good to not offend others? Yes. Paul talks about this. As those who are under the law became as those who are under the law. But he was free. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Christ, you are free because he took your place. You're free to live a new life of love, but not to trip others up. But I want to warn you, if you are not a believer in Christ, then you aren't free. If you're not a Christian, then you are under the obligation to keep the commandments. The amazing thing is that many non-Christian religions actually say you need to keep the commandments. And they profess loud and clear that, no, you are under the obligation to keep the commandments, and all those Christians are dead wrong. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize that those who say you must keep the commandments are condemned because they don't keep the commandments. And your only hope is in the death of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that your sin is an enormous mountain? Something that is impossible for you to take care of. Do you believe that? That your sin and your ability to keep the law, you cannot keep the law. You cannot save yourself. You cannot obey the commandments. You cannot deal with your sin problem. It is a mountain. But as Zechariah was, as we read in Zechariah, Zerubbabel was told, it's not by your might and it's not by your power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord, that this mountain shall be removed. By the almighty power of God in Jesus Christ, 
the gospel being the power of God to save you, that sin problem can be removed. Because Jesus died for your sins, it doesn't need to be a problem anymore. The issue is, do you have a tiny little bit of faith? Because it isn't your faith that saves you. It's the mighty power of God. And all you need is a tiny little bit of faith to connect with that power. You don't need to have a whole lot of faith. Jesus is encouraging you. Just a little bit of faith, the power of God will remove that mountain. Just a little bit of faith, brothers and sisters, is the difference between heaven and hell. Just a little bit of faith is an infinite difference. A weak, struggling Christian who's trusting in the death of Christ is infinitely different than someone who has a lot of faith in their ability to keep the commandments. Just a little bit of faith and the mountain is removed because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. Don't grab a shovel and try to move that mountain yourself. There's no bulldozer you can jump in that can move it. Only by trusting in Christ. So, into this dark and chaotic, sinful, messed up world in which we cannot save ourselves and we cannot heal ourselves came the Son of God from heaven to save us. Do you believe in the Son of God who came from heaven? If you do, brothers and sisters, then this morning, let's praise God for his salvation. And like the crowd that saw the demon-possessed boy healed, let us be amazed at the mighty power of God. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mighty power that's revealed in Jesus Christ. We thank you that his mighty power is what removes the mountain of our sin. And that does what is impossible with man. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't believe and who isn't trusting with a little bit of faith in the grace of Jesus Christ and in his death, that they would see that this mountain is something that they cannot take care of on their, uh, on their own, that they cannot remove. And that it is not by obedience to the law that they're saved. And Lord, for those of us here this morning who do have a little bit of faith and who are trusting in you for our salvation, who are trusting in you for our eternal salvation, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us this morning to believe you for other things as well, to broaden the scope of our faith, to trust you with all of our needs and to be anxious for nothing. And Lord, where we are anxious and where we are worried, that we pray and learn to trust in you and in your mighty power for all things. May we be amazed every day at your amazing power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.